Welcome, dear listener, to another episode of the Religious Studies Project. My name is Christopher Carter, and I'm joined, as ever, by... David Robertson. As ever, also, we are sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religions, and the International Association for the History of Religions. And today, we've got another interview that's been recorded by the wonderful Thomas J. Coleman. That's Tommy the Voice Coleman the Third, <laughs> And he's been speaking with Luke Galen about misplaced faith a theory of supernatural belief as misattribution. Um, so there's a lot going on there about um, epistemology and uh, uh, positionality and relationality. Belief, and, faith. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure there are some people screaming, why is it misattribution? Might take, be correct, that attribution. Exactly. So take it away, Tommy, and then David will come back afterwards to offer some of his own thoughts. Thank you for joining us on the Religious Studies Project. I am Thomas Coleman, and joining us today for the second time is Dr. Luke Galen. Luke is a psychologist of religion and secularity at Grand Valley State University. Uh, his work focuses on pro-social behavior, social cognition, and other methodological concerns. He has a forthcoming publication in Method and Theory and the Study of Religion that I'm, I'm hawking uh, for him today and, and uh, going to let everyone know about it because it's uh, very interesting. And check it out. It is titled Overlapping Mental Magisteria, Implications of Experimental Psychology for a Theory of Religious Belief is Misattribution. Dr. Galen, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, so uh, when we first spoke to you in 2015, you provided a critical analysis of the suggested links between religion, well-being, and pro-social behavior. We've invited you back today for another critical take, except this time uh, we'd like to know more about the interplay and possible implications of psychological research for supernatural attributions and belief, a topic that is sure to arouse controversy no matter what one says. Let's get started. Um, so, some say that psychological findings have no bearing on questions of supernatural agency. Uh, what do you think? What, what are some of the findings here? What's the controversies? What's the issue here? Yeah, the past couple of years I've been following this, there seems to be a lot of back and forth about what the, what the findings from cognitive science or religion would mean in terms of implications, you know, for the, for things like the uh, metaphysical implications or ontological implications with, you know, can we determine from identifying the mechanisms of the brain or how people think whether or not that, that data is accurate or not. So obviously one theory that's been around for a long time is that it has no bearing either way. That is that the, the, the non-overlapping magisteria theory where of Stephen Jay Gould would suggest that the findings from CSR or from psychology or the neurosciences don't really, they can correlate with your religious or spiritual uh, thoughts, but that doesn't debunk them. So often that's a, that's a word that's been used a lot is does the find, do the findings debunk religion? Um, one of the points with that one is that there's no objective criteria to determine whether that's, that there's a reliable accuracy there. So if somebody's, I guess, I think Justin Barrett used this analogy in one of his talks about William James's quote about the, you're thinking during a state of fever, like if you have a temperature of 98 versus 103, how do you know which one is, for all you know, it could be more accurate at the high versus the low temperature. So uh, in, in terms of 
putative constructs like hyperactive agency detection. You know, we, we know that people uh, over-detect agency, but how do we know that that doesn't disprove that there is an agent out there? It goes yeah. that line of thinking. That's, uh, that, that's actually one of the topics we've discussed before on the Religious Studies Project. I think it was Stuart Guthrie uh, discussed, uh, had uh, agency detection as a theory of religious belief. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so like uh, other research have, have sort of, some of their work, at least portion of it, has been interpreted as that sort of, you know, like Tanya Lorman's work with the prayers, the renewalist prayers who generate person-like agent uh, conversations. You know, she, she says that this can be interpreted through a naturalistic model, that they're doing that to themselves or, you know, psychological-wise, or this could be interpreted from their subjective point of view that they are actually communing with an external agent so that that gets into the whole philosophical point one point of view is that simply explaining the origin or the mechanisms of a belief doesn't entail anything about the truth of the belief i think justin barrett's analogy is you know if if i hear if i say that i hear a bird outside chirping you know you just because you identify the brain mechanisms or the auditory pathway that doesn't mean that that bird is not really there well so my impetus for the paper was that um my take on the field was that we have other information that goes beyond just merely the the correlational that goes just beyond beyond the saying that we've identified the mechanisms and that's the like the title of my article the experimental psychology of religion um so i i think another point of view though that some of the people take it that are more from the theistic side is that there's evidence that that would indicate in a dispositive way that there is external agency that is that you could look at effects of uh in, in behavior like if i'm in a very tangible way if i'm speaking in tongues or if there's an exceptional experience so that's indicative of external agency that my my attributions are reliable so you know common lay people do that all the time where they would they might say on one level you know you can't prove that god does or doesn't exist but then they would point to something like an at causal attribution like my cancer was remitted or um or that i have i get the subjective intuition of that god is there and they use that as as evidential so that to me seems like not in keeping with a non-overlapping model that you are, if you can point to some psychological state or evidence as being, you know, as evidential of God's existence or external agency, that does put it in the realm of science because then you can say, well, you know, is that is that an, a reliable perception or can we even manipulate that? And so that's why I think my paper kind of picks up where that debate, uh, I thought, leaves out, and that is the experimental psychology of religion does have something to say about accuracy, reliability, and, and validity yeah, of religious and spiritual thoughts. Yeah, definitely. Um, I suppose there's a kind of a long history of looking at attributional research um, in uh, psychological sciences, uh, uh, why people generate um, the explanations they do for certain phenomena and how they're sometimes correct and many times uh, not. Um, but uh, what are some of the previous theories or arguments um, that have been put forth um, arguing that our cognitive faculties are tuned to pick up God or that certain experiences may be inherently religious um, or pointing to a transcendent dimension? I think you've kind of maybe mentioned at least one uh, in the past few minutes. Yeah, the, uh, so other ones, well, from the philo- – I'm not a philosopher, but I was, you know, I'm familiar with that there's – uh, a theory, the theory of the God spot or the God uh, parts of the brain, uh, sometimes that's pointed to as being 
uh, in neuroscience that is if, uh, that if you have a God portion of the brain or that there's a mechanism that some of the ones we've already talked about in the cognitive science of religion, that those things could be interpreted as what's sometimes called the sensus divinitatis or, you know, that there's an inborn God faculty. And so many of the people who come from a more um, a, a theistic or apologetics background would say neuroscience or CSR has identified um, that these mechanisms could be interpreted as God put it there, essentially, that, that that this is consistent with the notion that God exists. And what he would do is he would put that in there so that we can perceive him would be one way to put that. So like your God faculties or that at the process of evolution, sometimes the uh, would say um, that that's consistent with evolution as the mechanism by which God uh, allowed our brains to develop in a way that would perceive them. So sometimes you hear people like Justin Barrett or Kelly James Clark making that argument um, that there's that's also based on on the supposition that our thoughts about God have some reliable component. That is, they're picking up something that's reliable. Now they would say, to be fair, they would say that that's not a perfect reliability. Not everybody's thought is you know is accurate, but they say that that could be then supported by not non-intuitive processes. So like analytical things that, that, that your brain could do use, you know, logic, apologetics, or, and reason to scaffold or um, support what would be more coarse-grained intuitions and refine them into more accurate perceptions. So obviously, no, I don't know that many people would argue that there's a Jesus detector in your brain, but they would simply say that the God faculty would provide the basis, and then your your rational parts could then do the work and, and you know, and, and sign that down into a more correct and uh, supported interpretation. And uh, I guess, um, to be clear, kind of this uh, God faculty, as is, is we're calling it here, uh, I guess the components of that would probably be um, agent detection, which uh, you mentioned earlier, and also uh, probably theory of mind, um, closely yep. mixed between the two, and um, uh, I suppose what will help, uh, as you're saying, scaffold uh, communication, sense, experiences of some type of div divine presence on uh, some counts. Yeah, those would be the big building blocks, I guess, in, in the CSR, like theory of mind, agency detection, uh, promiscuous teleology and, and purpose detection, uh, like Deb Kellerman's work on, on people's being over That Those things would be the building blocks, and then, you know, your logical uh, and rational thoughts could, could refine that and support that through, through rational processes. So that's where, again, that's where I'm... Um, my problem with that, some of those theories are, again, that, that there have certain implications. Uh, there's implications within the psychological work that go further than just simply correlational aspects of cognitive science of religion. That is, rather than simply inferring that humans in general have evolved a tendency, I agree that that could be interpreted either way as that's not just debunking necessarily of the agents are actually out there. There are external agents. What I pick up, though, is su suggesting that there's one, that there are individual differences, not just a general human tendency. So some people detect more agents than others. So most people are obviously familiar that some people make more God attributions than other people, and that's a function of anything from demographic factors. You know, I think you've probably talked with people before about the, the, the sex difference in belief uh, with males and females and uh, uh, to education levels to even simply your just your religious tradition. How, how is uh, how is some of that going to come into play? So um, I, I think everyone w would admit to some level, um, uh, you know, living in the United States, perhaps one is more likely to be a, a Christian than uh, being born in uh, Iran, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so how does, uh, you know, demographic 
gender and um, I guess specifically psychological personality variables um, influence attributions or um, someone being religious or not religious at all? Yeah, sure. When you dig down into those things, then you start to get to some more fundamental aspects, like you mentioned with with cognition or personality. Uh, so there's a whole air body of work now on analytical thought that some people are more analytical as opposed to intuitive thinkers, and and the analytical thinkers uh, have fewer beliefs in in religious and spiritual agents. Um, the personality factors. So we know things like you know if you're into the big five theories, like openness to experience which is partially genetically related, uh, uh, influences your religious and spiritual um, tendencies. And then um, other things that are sort of quasi-personality, like absorption, the trade. I think it's Telegin, is he, is he the guy who developed absorption? Yeah, so, uh, yeah um, and, um, and, and Tanya Lurman talks about in, the, in her research, too, that the people who are the best person-like God uh, interactors are people who are high in absorption. Well... The thing about things like openness and absorption and intuitive cognition is that they are uh, – we have other work suggesting that those are related to overdetection. So here's where we get into a that there are – we do have objective criteria to suggest that it's not just that atheists are somehow obtuse and underdetecting. I think Justin Barrett's phrase here is that they might have beer goggles or they might have, you know, sort of epistemically be stupid, that it's the opposite, that we know from things that have – actual objective targets that people who are high in absorption, for example, or, or certain forms of intuitive as opposed to analytic cognition, they're over-detecting, given, for example, ambiguous stimuli that they overshoot the mark in seeing person-like agents, or in the case of high absorption, in very high cases, they might be considered almost schizotypic in that they have thoughts that are like synesthesia, or they're blending ontological categories between living and non-living. Those things are not just... Um, Subjective, we have objective targets to show that it's not just that they are inaccurate, that that um, that they are being um, um, sort of overshooting the mark uh, by by over mentalizing, for example. Uh, and to be clear here, we're not saying, um, uh, I guess, to pick maybe uh, intuitive and analytic thinking that um, if you're an intuitive thinker, you're a theist. If you're an analytic thinker. You're an Correct. atheist, right? So, so these are probably, you know, in some cases, very small population size differences. That doesn't mean that they don't exist or not important. But what, um, uh, what, what does it mean? You know, does everyone you meet who may have a more intuitive personality are they going to be a theist? Sure, I, th I think that the degree of the relationship is obviously not a one to one. Uh, but the, uh, I think where it gets interesting though is when you get beyond just that correlational work into experimental work, and that is the strongest evidence that I think uh, on this point is that you can alter uh, by things like priming or experimental interventions. You can alter people's belief in religious and spiritual agents or anthropomorphization uh, through various paradigms. And this is something, again, that I think has not been well addressed in the debates about just simply from the CSR model of debunking religion. We have a whole body of work in experimental psychology that has been doing this for several decades. So let's take, um, for example, the, the, um, the research on things like cognitive dissonance theory, um, that people have beliefs that are, when they're especially entrenched, that threats to the belief will cause them to double down or increase in their beliefs. That can be viewed as something that is a direct manipulation, that you can make people and essentially more religious by threats or something that uh, by, by, you know, like comparison 
of experimental conditions where some people are in a non-threat versus a threat condition. There's some research that when you expose Christians to like evidence questioning Christ's resurrection or you know the biblical literalism that they become more dogmatic. That sort of is not uh, that that sort of evidence would indicate there that again that beliefs are malleable that they're fungible uh, or there's a whole body of work in compensatory uh, epistemic things like compensatory uh, so, control. So, so these would be like some type of motivational factors and things you're talking about f for belief. Yes. Um, yeah, so, so everybody has a, has a need to have things like control and stability and, and social contact. We talked earlier before about your interest in things like people's uh, theory of mind and their social contact. You could treat that as just a correlational variable. How how theory of mindy mentalizing are you? But you could also treat that as an ex, as a deep as an experimental variable. What if I deprive you of social contact, or what if you are? What if I intervene and and, and uh, to lead you to, for example, like Epley's work on? Uh, I think there's that gods and greyhounds study where people become more anthropomorphizing onto various things when they're socially in a state of social deficit. I was just going to say, you know, we know what happens when, when people are more lonely or, or deprived. Um, they overextend. Uh, I think that's actually a finding in terms of anthropomorphism. I think it's a finding that was just recently replicated as well um, in the <laughs> literature. But Yeah, that fits in with a variety of theories, also like attachment theory, that we know that people who have uh, who have poor attachment relationships in childhood are more likely to, in later in life to have sudden conversion, emotional religious conversion experiences, which fits in with that uh, the deficit compensatory model. Um, obviously, people are probably familiar with things like uh, terror management theory is also a compensatory model. When I threaten you with death anxiety, it causes your need for mortality protection to, to increase. So this is what I mean by there's a lot of experimental theories that my paper talks about where, where belief in God is can be increased by threatening somebody's uh, or, or, or experimental interventions to to show that it's not just simply a correlational model that those things can be increased or decreased. This is you can even observe this on a on a. There's a lot of studies on cross national data where why is it that certain areas of the world are less religious than others? That can also be viewed from a compensatory lens. Uh, the weird nations. Uh, of Northern Europe, and uh, why is it that they're not as religious? You could view that as being that they're they are safe and secure, and they have less of a need to to generate uh, religious and spiritual protector agents, things like that. I know uh, within the religious studies scholarship, a, a common question is kind of you know what's the difference between politics and religion? So some people try to make a you know a staunch distinction there. And um, I, I wanted to point out that a lot of the research you're talking about uh, has also been done on political beliefs. Mm -hmm. And um, so, so it's not necessarily, um, you know, special or unique to the domain of religion. You know, these seem to be like some general tendencies, uh, or biases, and not necessarily in the negative sense, because we know many of uh, the biases that we do have are uh, serve positive functions and, and other roles. But um, they don't seem to be special to religion. They can also go for political beliefs and, and other things, correct? Sure. Well, I think I think Aaron Kay's model on compensatory control is a good illustration of that. Uh, some of his work on God and governments, uh, that when you make people feel out of control or people who are in a state of feeling less control, they increase their faith in government, uh, government's ability to control things. But also it's 
uh, with gods as well, that when you make people less feel less in control, that they increase their belief in specifically in a controlling God. So there you would, like you said, that there's it's not unique. It's not unique to religious um, constructs or variables that it can also that sort of these needs can be met through other means. We also talked about like cognitive dissonance earlier when people's political views are threatened, they double down on their political views. Uh, so all these theories can 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 view religion as no different from a lot of other worldviews like your political, your social political worldview or your moral worldview. So um, uh, I wanted to kind of stop you right there and use this as a jumping off point to go back to something we talked about earlier, and that was about a, a God spot in the brain. So, so you were talking about kind of some religious worldviews being perhaps no different than other worldviews. Um, what about parts of the brain, neuroscience. Um, you know, it's often argued that um, maybe there's there's a God spot in the brain, not necessarily the God faculty in terms of cognition, but an actual maybe physical location, um, you know, in someone's head, the God spot. Yeah, the, the brain, brain cognitive uh, neuroscience has been one of the ground zeros for this whole debate on both sides. So like when we started talking that many people have said, hey, look, this brain research on things like brain stimulation or Persinger's like God helmet stuff, this would indicate that all your um, all your theistic beliefs or, or beliefs in external agency really have just brain localizations. And then the other side has come back and has said, of, of course, a there's you know there's problems with that work. Now that you know it's not a one to one relationship, but B just because you could have a neurologically mediated experience doesn't disprove the existence of external agencies. Again, that could be one way that God communicates with you is by, you know, by that mechanism of stimulating the God spot. So uh, in answer to your, to your query, uh, there doesn't seem to be any one specific God spot because different people, different research teams working with different areas of the brains with different methodology claim to have, have, um, have had success, uh, varying degrees of success with, with, you know, the frontal lobes, the temporal lobe, the limbic system. I think uh, one thing is that seems apparent, though, and that is, is that religious cognition seems to be indistinguishable from whatever areas those those brain areas, the, the functions that they do anyway. So, for example, your your temporal lobes, yes, there is some evidence there that that um, that certain religious cognitions are mediated by things like temporal lobes. So we have work on like stimulation work all the way back to, was it Penfield that did the electronic stimulation studies of temporal lobes and people reported experiences or sense of meaning to the, um, to temporal lobe epilepsy. There's a whole work on uh, clinical work, but then other people, areas and such. yeah, uh, what is it? The TPJ is also thought to be a right, theory temporal. of big theory of mind where you're attributing uh, mental states to other agents. So there's a whole group that works on like moral research, even where you're making moral cognitive by attributing the states of mind to you what what could you have known versus not have known is necessary for like a moral distinction but then you have the people who like uh newberg's work with the um with like meditators that works with uh, the the boundary areas in the parietal lobe your sense of personal space to correlate that with their sense of um of when their personal ego boundary seems to fade away during meditation that seems to be related to shutting down those areas of your physical boundaries in your parietal lobes. And then uh, I think Newberg also has done work with tongue speakers, hasn't he, with frontal lobe, with glossolalia. As, as people are speaking in tongues, the, the Broca's area of their brain seems to become less activated, which would correlate with their perception of not controlling their utterances. So again, it seems that there's, there's a variety of areas in the brain that do their job in, in secular cognition ways uh, that 
that map right onto the religious cognition areas so that it's not really special in that regard. Yeah, I guess so. Maybe to the extent that one does have a God spot, they have a Luke Galen spot. They have a <laughs> spot for their cat. They have a spot for their best friend. You know, that there's um, uh, that, that uh, the brain mediates functioning in the world, or at the very least, um, the source of it is, is, is true for everything. Wasn't um, there that uh, the research a while back that found the Jennifer Aniston neuron? Yes. The, both the Friends characters. And, but I, I think, again, that the um, uh, I would agree to some extent that, that a lot of this work doesn't have necessarily metaphysical implications. But nowadays, we have the ability, again, to do stronger designs where we can actually manipulate brain activity. So I'm talking about things like transcranial magnetic stimulation or direct current stimulation where that does have i think a little bit stronger uh implications as to what we spoke of before about whether these things can be thought of as being reliable or not so some of the to me the some of the most fascinating work is what if you could alter functioning of the brain in a way that the person subjectively does not perceive as being intrusive so things like um, uh, alterings people's movements by activating their 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 premortal cortex to induce the sense of uh, of intention to move. Now you would think that that somebody would have the perception like I'm in a lab or they have this strange apparatus about me. Therefore, anything that I do now is driven by an, uh, I'm just a puppet. You know that they that it's not me that's doing that. But interestingly enough, many people confabulate a mental state. I meant to do that. Or it is my choice, or at least that they don't even they don't even perceive which things are being manipulated, what we know to be manipulated, versus things that they themselves are intending to do. And so I think this gets a more of a deeper notion of of people's inability to distinguish the actual origins of their intentions and thoughts and actions that people often confabulate or misattribute and say, I meant to do that, when in actuality it was a function just of external conditions. No, I, I definitely think uh, you know humans are, uh, without a doubt, explanation machines. Whether one is um, uh, going to church or the science lab, um, you know we're searching for answers and explanations for things, and we'll do so in ways that sometimes make sense, and sometimes we just made it all up, and it comes true yeah. anyway. <laughs> yeah. So the, when 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 somebody with this has religious implications, if somebody's going to argue that my the basis for thinking that something is um, is is religious and spiritually accurate or reliable is that was the person's state of mind. That is, they would say, I'm not doing this to myself. It seemed external to me. That is not reliable. It's, it is not indicative of actual external agency just because you think it is. I think um, it was Daniel Wegner had a very important book a while back called The Illusion of the Conscious Will, which showed that it's very easy or even commonplace for people to have the illusion that they are in the will driver's seat, that they initiate actions when, in fact, it's done through things like priming or uh, social context or conformity in ways that the person doesn't even notice. And that also fits into dual processing theory. So Daniel Kahneman's work, like thinking fast and slow, when you have type one uh, intuitive thoughts and type two analytical thoughts, it's not the case that analytical thinking corrects your type one all the time. Sometimes it it, it abets it or, or uh, justifies it. So if your argument in, in the case of the religion, religion and spiritual debate is um, my my analytical thought can can correct those errors in intuitive thinking, that's not always the case. That in many cases you rationalize 
or, uh, or come up with an explanation that's confabulated of an intuitive thought. I'm uh, kind of rounding uh, this interview out here. Um, I wanted to end on a, with an interesting question here, maybe uh, provoke some thoughts. So uh, some scholars talk about a dialogue between religious explanations and scientific explanations. Uh, what are the implications for this dialogue if it is accepted that scientific explanations may have more bearing on religious phenomena than many presume? Yeah, they have. Um, there's a lot of talk of this dialogue. Uh, in fact, we're at the university where I work. They have a, every year they have a conference called the Grand Dialogue, where people get together and talk about science and religion, uh, and the, it implies that they go back and forth and consider things like uh, science and religion, or like when we started off talking that there's that there's complementary domains that the religion. Uh, that the science complements the religion by providing this, you know, explanation. My problem with that is, is that in in science, dialogue uh, cannot. There are many things that aren't perpetually open ended, meaning that that sometimes that part of the portion of the scientific method is culling out hypotheses that have less support. Uh, you know, and this is sometimes this is called the uh, the abductive model. You argue to the best explanation that it in many ways, yeah, it might be impossible to rule out certain God concepts. If your God concept is very deistic where, yes, there's a God, but he doesn't do much. He doesn't intervene. Sure. Science can't really, you know, address that. You can't rule out a negative. But uh, if you're making very specific hypothesis that God does this and God does that, then I think science then that puts it in the squarely in the domain of a testable hypothesis. So, for example, if you're saying that people's mental, like we were saying, the, the, the cognitive science of religion, if you're interpreting that as saying, oh, look, this mechanism is here because God put it there through evolution. It's a God spot. It's a census divinitatis. Well, that's test. That's a testable hypothesis. And and as we've been discussing, I think a lot of those tests have turned out that that uh, uh, a that those thoughts are not reliable or that at the very least that people cannot tell the difference between a subjective perception that is, you know, something that's generated experimentally even in a spontaneous intuition. So if you're asking, you know, do these, does science have implications for some aspects of religious belief? I think that um, in many ways it, it does provide contrary evidence to certain hypotheses that have been made about them. Fascinating stuff. And uh, I'm sure this podcast will stir some good debate and discussion. And I'm also sure that our listeners can look forward to the published feature responses uh, coming later this week. And I was hoping before we go, um, do you have a web page where our listeners can go and find out more about your work, somewhere you can point them? Um, I just have my uh, at my Grand Valley State University Psychology Department faculty webpage. I don't have anything fancy. I just I just put all my publication citations up there. So I guess that's the best that that I can do for now. Perfect, perfect, and we'll be sure to include a link there. So, uh, Dr. Galen, thank you for joining us on the Religious Studies Project. Okay, thanks for having me. That was Thomas the Voice Coleman speaking to Luke, also the Voice Galen. So, David. Um, you have written quite a bit about this sort of stuff with um, the conspiracist milieu, uh, in a sense, haven't you? Yes. Well, in a number of ways. Uh, so the first thing that springs to mind is that conspiracism is the only other case, really, apart from religion, where people talk about 
this idea of you know misattribution, looking for agencies and forces which uh, secretly control the world, but don't either don't leave evidence or deliberately obscure their evidence. Right? They're the only two cases where um, uh, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Mm. Um, so they 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 have a different epistemological basis. Um, what I think is quite interesting here is that the use of the term faith. We also have the term belief, um, but we also have the the idea of misattribution. Of course, whenever people are writing about conspiracy theories, almost always in the social science, they start telling us about why it's bad thinking, um, either through some sort of uh, illness or you know implied um, schizophrenia or paranoia or something like this, but also often just poor reasoning. You know, so the classic um, quote about conspiracy theories are the the poor man's cognitive mapping you know from jameson ironically a marxist um but you never see this same uh critique launched from rs scholars i mean imagine you went to uh, you picked up um introduction to christianity and it started with the, um this supernatural being that nobody's ever seen sends his son to be killed and th millions of people believe these strange ideas but why um how can we correct them how can mm. we how can we um force people to use reason instead of um the strange kind of way of thinking mm. um it's a very different approach yeah of course epistemologically speaking they're exactly the same yeah and i always like to to say to students and, and you know it's not people don't believe in god people know that God mm. exists, mm. Or, or or know that conspiracies are true, or know whatever. It, it's not. It's not any different to to knowledge in the way it manifests and the way it functions. Right, um, right. So. And likewise, the same with faith. I mean, the students will often use the word faith, um, either to just mean a religion, which they always get uh, a comment on their essays from me when they do it, mm -hmm. um, or you know they talk about it as this being this thing which is at the essence of religion, um. But there's, you know, it's not it's not clear what this is. What makes this any different from any other kind of knowledge, apart from the fact that you're possibly consciously aware that it doesn't come from reason. But then I always say to them, um, and this came up this week, we were talking about the new atheists, and they were, as ever, waxing lyrical about basing ideas on reason. And I, I said to you, do you think any of these four men, uh, do you think they're married? They probably all are, right? Well, what's that based on? Was that based on reason? Love's not based on reason, nor is your choice of football team, your political party. The vast majority of what people do, scientists included, is not based on reason. But funnily enough, in certain circumstances, when it comes to talking about political conspiracies or the agency of God, then suddenly we start assuming that it is. Fantastic. Well, you can just see the sort of reaction that it produced, this this week's podcast produced in uh, Dr. Robertson here. And I know that you would have, of course, written a fantastic response on that had you not been spending the previous week um, curating uh, film screenings at a fantastic conference and getting some interviews for us. Um, I hear that conference went very well, David. It went very well indeed. And um, thank you to... Uh, send Sam for inviting me down to to take part in it, and I will be 
getting some recordings as soon as possible uh, as soon as we can find respondents we're going to have some interviews excellent from and we'll be um, editing that bit out if there's any sort of, sort of massive disaster at the, the <laughs> yes. conference that hasn't yet happened um don't Cut. pull the curtain back, Chris. <laughs> I always do. I always do. Uh, mm. We've wittered on quite a bit there, folks, but come back next week for another interview that Sydney's um, recorded for us with uh, Juan Fonseca Ariza on politics of this world, Protestant, evangelical, and Pentecostal movements in the Peruvian political landscape. So a nice um, political uh, conversation next week. Come back for our response. Check out the social media feeds, Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, Google Plus, YouTube, and don't forget our Amazon links. And I think that's about everything apart from... Thanks for listening.